Hello and welcome to a Dorkomotive Short. On this episode, we tell the story of Art Malone and Bob Osicki, who took one of the weirdest race cars ever built, reset the world's closed course speed record in 1961, and got a big fat check from Bill France for proof that his Daytona International Speedway was the fastest in the world. This is the story of the Mad Dog 4. We'd like to welcome NitroActive.net as the presenting sponsor of this episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast. NitroActive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts, as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from Moon Eyes, Laidback, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. Go to NitroActive.net for a huge selection of old school hot rod and drag stuff. Use the code DORK for a 10% discount. That's DORK to save 10% on your next order at NitroActive.net. So today we're talking about a very specific race track, a very specific race car, and a very specific date in the history of both of those things, which is August 27th, 1961. That was the date that Art Malone drove Bob Osicki's Mad Dog 4 to a speed of over 181 miles an hour average for a lap at Daytona International Speedway. This was a huge accomplishment, not just for the two men involved, but for motorsports in general, and it was a giant feather in the cap of Bill France, and it did wonders to help remediate what was a kind of a touch-and-go image of Daytona International Speedway in the late 1950s and early 60s. We have to go back to 1959 to really get the genesis of this story, and even maybe a little bit before that. It was in 1957 that the closed course speed record was set in Italy at Monza, and in an upcoming episode of the Dorkomotive podcast, you're going to hear the whole story of an event called the Race of Two Worlds, and it was during the Race of Two Worlds that Tony Bettenhausen drove a Novi-powered IndyCar to an average speed of over 177 miles per hour per lap around the Monza speed ring, which would stand for a couple years as the fastest closed course speed ever set up by anybody. Enter Bill France and enter 1959 with the construction of the Daytona International Speedway. France taking some of the lessons from the very fastest racetracks around the world and applying them all in one place created what he foresaw as the fastest racetrack in the world. What the public and a lot of racers foresaw was the most dangerous place to race in the world. Why? Well, because Monza, shaped like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, had those two short straights, kind of a a rectangle with rounded corner shape. Well, this was a tri-oval at Daytona, and it had bankings of more than 30 degrees in the corners and 18 degrees along the straightaways and during the the area of the racetrack where the little tri-oval kicks out. Effectively, during that time, cars and drivers would not have to lift their feet off the throttle and be able to run this place flat out. A very dangerous prospect, a very scary prospect in an era when tires would barely last at the speeds they were achieving at far slower racetracks across the country. Marshall Teague was the first victim of Daytona International Speedway and the first man to create what would be a PR problem for Bill France and his new racetrack. About two weeks after the place opened, Marshall Teague went to Daytona International Speedway with the plan of setting the world's closed course speed record. Teague was driving a special car. It was a IndyCar style machine with a full body on it called the Sumar Special and this car was built with the idea of setting this closed course record and running very high speeds not just at Bonneville not just on the bankings but anywhere they took it it was a beautiful looking car but ultimately unfortunately for Marshall Teague his life would end on February 11th 1959 when the car hit the wall very hard broke apart and threw him about 150 feet away from where the wreck happened it was a tragic day for a NASCAR legend. 
Moving on in 1959, we get to April. When we get to April 1959, the one and only time IndyCars have ever raced at Daytona was in that April event. Now, during qualifying, flirting with those speed records were racers like Jim Rathman and a racer named George Amick. George Amick was a very popular racer at the time, a gutsy competitor, and a guy who was out there pushing the limits of speed like everyone else, averaging over 170 miles an hour in the upper ranges of 170 miles an hour, nearing 180 on the bankings of Daytona. Unfortunately for George Amick, he would be killed in a high-speed crash during that event, and so shaken was the whole USAC IndyCar community, they have never raced again at the Daytona International Speedway. Likely a tire failure caused George Amick's death because that was the most common problem that people had during this era of running high-sustained speeds. So what does Bill France do? He now has had two very high-profile passings within the first year of operation of this fantastic racetrack that he has constructed, and the public outcry begins to raise up a little bit more. People started to equate this era of racing like the board tracks of the 19-teens and 20s, what they were then called motordromes, and the public would then call them murderdromes because so many people would pass away and fans would be killed, and there was a lot of genuine fear about this facility, and a lot of genuine fear about what its implications would be as cars kept going faster and faster. So Bill France did what Bill France did his whole career. He bucked the trend. He stood up and he said, I will pay $10,000 to the first person who can go 180 miles an hour on this closed course. Not break the record on a closed course. The first person to run 180 miles an hour on this closed course will win $10,000 of my dollars. Well, There was a lot of people that decided they wanted to try to do that. None of them were successful, except for a pair of drag racers from the southeastern part of the country in a very unlikely car, and one of the most strange combinations of horsepower, chassis, and people, we find the names of Bob Osicki, we find the name Art Marshall, and we find an old, worn-out indie car that they will repower with help from Ed Iskandarian, and then get some assistance from a Georgia Tech engineer, and at the end of the day, all this will come together, and they will become legends as a group because they will achieve the goal. We first have to start with the car. So the weapon that Bob Osicki first chose to attack this particular challenge with was an old Curtis-built Indy Roadster. And the interesting part about the car here is the fact that It was built for Pat O'Connor back in the late 1950s. The car was a couple, two, three years old by the time this is happening. And Pat O'Connor gets killed, as so many drivers did. O'Connor gets killed in a wreck before he's able to even really race the thing. It is then purchased by a guy named Ray Nichols. And Ray Nichols was a great engineer and race car builder. And he was in charge of Pontiac's racing program from about 1957 or 58, right until the 1963 kind of Super Duty era. Then he switched over and began working for Chrysler. But when Nichols had this car, it had a Pontiac engine in it, and it was used. Nichols also, being from Ohio, did a lot of work with the tire companies, and this machine was used as a Firestone test vehicle. So this car had been just beat up on lots and lots of laps because it wasn't a race car per se. It didn't get the maintenance or the care or the love that a normal race car gets. It was just kind of road hard and put away wet. Jim Rathman had driven it and uh, tested a lot of Firestone tires with it. They had done some endurance and speed testing with the car. So when Bob Osicki bought this thing for $5,000 um, back in the late or early 1960s, I should say, 
he spent about 40 grand of today's money on it and it would be the equivalent of walking in and buying like a couple year old indy car now for for about forty thousand dollars which you'd expect um to be impossible but back then this car again had not had any sort of racing heritage or pedigree and it was just something that um that apparently Ray Nichols was trying to get rid of, and Bob Osicki was the man for the job. So when Osicki gets the car, he knows that he has the basic platform that should work. Obviously, the cars that have set the closed course speed record at this time in history have been of this style, and Osicki is a Dodge aligned. He is an amazing man, and we're going to take, make another whole episode about Bob Osicki, then we could fill it. He's kind of an East Coast version of Mickey Thompson that a lot of people may not be familiar with. Anyway, Osiki has a relationship with Dodge. He talks to them about an engine, and they say, oh, we get this nice 413 that you can have to use for this attempt. Now, he understands that the 413 is not necessarily by itself going to be strong enough to get the job done, and he decides to take this a step further, and what becomes, I think, the coolest element of this, he contacts Ed Iskandarian out in California, says, Ed, I need your help. I am trying to run this record. I'm putting this thing in a in a what is effectively a period indie roadster, and I need horsepower, a lot of it. Sends it out to Iski. Iski proceeds to put a blower on this thing. So you have a blown 413 that is also injected, that has been built and has been dyno tested to about 850 horsepower. So. We have a, an Indy car now with a blown motor in it. When you see photos of this, again, I, as I always do, I encourage you to look up the photos because it is a car that looks like something out of the movies and not in a good way. It's a very strange-looking car. As the engine comes back, motor is plugged in a car, a couple adjustments made by Osiki, and they go to the racetrack in early 1961. And he goes to the racetrack with a couple of, uh, you know, I want to say proven commodities when it comes to race car drivers. And again, this is um, this is a record that's going to require somebody with a lot of not only guts, but with a lot of skill. I mean, this is very dangerous. You have a racetrack that two people have already been killed on. And now you're going to go put people out there in a similar car with a lot more horsepower than those uh, Indy cars were running at the time, which... You know, those guys were basically uh, all Offenhauser power. They were not making 840 horsepower. And they were only trying to run a couple miles an hour faster. So this was a really blunt force trauma approach by Osiki. So in February of 61, he has the engine back. He has all the parts and pieces needed. And the Hillborn injection, the Isky blower, or Isky puts the blower on it, sets up a camshaft for the thing and gets it back to Osiki. The 413, ready to go. He goes to Bonav- or rather he goes to Daytona and brings with him Brian Naylor and a guy named Larry Frank. Naylor is a British racer. Frank is an American racer. Both highly respected. Both understand the game. Both understand the danger. Osiki thinks he is in good hands, and technically, he is. But these guys are not near fast enough. Naylor goes out and runs 157 miles an hour, and that's it. He will not go any faster. Whether whether it was because he did not want to or whether it was because he could not, is not really the, the not really a factor here. He just couldn't go any faster than 157 miles an hour. Larry Frank goes out, runs 166 miles an hour, but coming out of one of the turns, I believe turn three, Frank loses control and skids for 2,100 feet, thankfully hitting nothing. He skidded down the banking and into the infield, if you will, and the car kind of pirouetting around the whole time. Uh, Larry Frank walked away, 
and Larry Frank did not get back in the race car again. Uh, neither man wanted to be part of the other's project at that point. Frank did not want to get back in the car, and Osicki did want did not want Frank back in the car. Now, you may be wondering about the name. Why was it called Mad Dog? That was Osicki's kind of pet name for a bunch of different race cars. This happened to be the fourth Mad Dog. It was not the fourth attempt he had made to go 180. It was just the fourth car in this particular line of, uh, of machines. The tires on the car provided by Firestone, and this is an interesting point as well. I mentioned the Race of Two Worlds, and I'll mention again in an upcoming episode, we'll tell the whole story of the Race of Two Worlds. But the tires on this car actually came from that Race of Two Worlds, which had happened years before this attempt was being made. Firestone made a special run of several dozen of those tires, and once that race was over, people came home, and because they never went back to Monza after 1958, the tires never got used. So rather than make special tires, Firestone simply called the people that had gotten the original run of tires and gathered up, I think, 36 or 38, an odd number, 36 or 38 of those tires for Osiki to use during his test runs and record attempts in Daytona. So not only was this happening in a car that was never designed to have this much power, or a V8, or a blower on it, it was happening on tires that were multiple years old, and while they had been tested at Monza, the sustained speeds that would be happening here at Daytona were far beyond anything even those tires had seen. So the drama and danger is very high, and two professional race car drivers in February of 1961 have failed and failed miserably to get this car up to any sort of representative speed. Now it's time to talk to you about an engineer from Georgia Tech. We'd like to welcome Nitroactive.net as the presenting sponsor of this episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts, as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from Moon Eyes, Laidback, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. Go to Nitroactive.net for a huge selection of old school hot rod and drag stuff. Use the code DORK for a 10% discount. That's DORK to save 10% on your next order at Nitroactive.net. So when the Mad Dog failed with two good drivers in it, Osiki knew it was more than just the car, and he also knew that he may have been a little bit over his head with some elements of this project. Before World War II, Osiki was a student at Georgia Tech University. So what he did after World War II and becoming successful in business, he decided to call some old friends. He never graduated from Georgia Tech, but he did have some contacts there, and he was uh, still in contact really with kind of the whole alumni community and knew that Georgia Tech had done some motorsports work in the past. So Osiki gets a hold of a guy, uh, a professor of aerodynamics named Professor Harper. And this is John Harper. He is a, uh, a well-respected man. He worked and was leading the School of Aeronautics at Georgia Tech. So gets a hold of Harper and Harper says, hey, send me the car. So Osiki ships the car from Charlotte, North Carolina to the Guggenheim building at Georgia Tech. And Harper kind of uh, took the stock of this thing. He and his students built a model of it. And the reason that Georgia Tech was a great place for this um, kind of study to happen is the fact that they had a wind tunnel and the fact that Harper was in charge of running that wind tunnel. So whatever time they needed to refine this design, he oversaw all of it. So he had the keys to the castle, pretty much. So they build the model and they start building some small wings. And what they came up with was adding a pair of wings to the side of the car but the wings were inverted so instead of creating lift obviously they're going to now create downforce they also suggested that a big vertical stationary tail fin get built on the back of the car for increased stability 
going down the straightaways, kind of keeping the car tracking in a straight line and trying not to rotate itself around because of, you know, wheel spin and slippage as the car goes around the corners. So Osiki takes their advice, uh, has a set of three square foot wings built, one for either side of the car. And when you see the photos of it, it looks janky as all get out, but it is effective. And it is effective, and we know it's effective because they go on later to set the record. It's interesting to me that Osiki was so open to taking this taking this design and engineering information. And so often in racing, we hear stories of people that, oh, well, I'm not an engineer, but I'm smarter than the engineers. Well, Osiki knew at this point he needed some pro help, and he took it. And the guidance that he got was absolutely 100% spot on. To quote from Popular Hot Rodding, episode rather issue number one of popular hot riding believe it or not back in 1962 uh covered this and it was covered in every car magazine and most sports magazines as well sports illustrated which i'll quote from here in a few minutes was also part of the coverage this was a huge huge deal so we now go to popular hot riding issue one from 1962 a story about called nothing else faster on a racetrack now Osiki resorted to the ingenuity that spills success or failure for so many fast car builders. He decided the car needed aerodynamic control and contacted John Harper of Georgia Tech. Harper and engineers who worked for Douglas Aircraft recommended inverted airfoils, which give the car negative lift at high speeds. The foils would be adjustable. A tail fin was also designed to give the car improved stability. No one ever put aerodynamic controls on a race car like this before in any major effort we're aware of, although we can't see why, Osiki said. It's well known that at extremely high speeds, the rear end of a car tends to swing forward even on straightaways so that the vehicle actually is traveling at an angle off center. In a major straightaway test run at Bonneville, this happened and the car actually became an airfoil itself as the air caught it sideways. It zoomed into the air and crashed. It took five months for the wings to get built, for the body to get modified, and for Bob Osiki to head back to the Daytona International Speedway. We now have the car, the horsepower, and theoretically we have the aerodynamics. There is one missing factor, though. The person who will drive this thing and who will drive it to speeds that no one has ever achieved on a closed course before. Did he go to Europe? Did he go to the west coast of the United States? Did he go to the IndyCar Brethren? Did he go to the stock car racing community? Oh no. Bob Osicki went to the one place he knew best, the drag strip, to find his man. It does seem incredible that Bob Osicki would choose a drag racer, of all people, to handle this task, this impossible task that people, while not maybe directly attempting to set this record, many, many people had died at speed and at speeds around racetracks like this that had years of racing experience, that had come through dirt tracks and sprint cars and champion cars and up into indie cars. And yet here we are with Art Malone, the drag racer in the seat of this race car. Bob Osicki knew Art Malone pretty well because of the fact that both men were very ensconced in the world of drag racing. Art Malone was a childhood friend of Don Garlitz, grew up with Garlitz, raced with Garlitz for years. When Don Garlitz had a horrible fire at the drag strip that Bob Osicki owned in Chester, South Carolina in 1959, it was Art Malone that got into his dragster by Garlitz's own choosing and went out shortly thereafter, and set the world record on a drag strip. So this is definitely a race car driver, and Art Malone's racing career would blossom after this. We'll talk more about that, but it's it's a curious decision, 
but it's a wise decision, and we'll see why. They went to Daytona with a plan. They were not going to show up there on the first day and run the 180-mile-an-hour speed. They were going to do this over the course of a couple of weeks. They were going to gradually take their time and build up speed. The wings that had been applied to the car were going to produce, according to the engineers, about 1,000 pounds of downforce at speeds ranging from 190 to 200 miles an hour. So at 180 miles an hour, slightly less than 1,000 pounds of down pressure going to be on the car. Interestingly, car magazines at the time, like the popular hot rodding book I have, like Speed Mechanics, and like Cars, as well as Modern Rodder, referred to this phenomena as down thrust. They were not calling it down force yet, it was down thrust. Anyway, let's go and hear from Bob Osicki again. He has chosen his driver. Now let's hear about his strategy in terms of running the car. And I quote, once again, the story from Popular Hot Rodding Issue 1. Tires and driver reflexes are a major problem, according to Osiki. The car burned out 14 sets of tires in a single week while trying for 180 miles an hour. Quoting Osiki. Even with the specially built race tires, it's difficult. They're constructed to go 170 to 175 miles an hour, and at those speeds, they'll last 25 to 30 miles. But at 176 miles an hour, they only last about 20 miles. At 178, the mileage goes down to 15, six times around the track. They don't blow, but they reach a point where we don't know how safe they are and feel they are unsafe. At 179 to 180, the tires only last 10 miles, four laps around the track. At 180 to 181, it's just about seven miles or three times around the track. Other factors must be considered as well. Fuel, for instance. The Osiki Dodge has a fuel tank that holds 67 gallons, but more than three times the capacity of an ordinary passenger tank. But the Osiki Dodge at speeds of 175 to 180 gets only one-third to one-half mile per gallon. It uses nearly eight gallons to lap the track just once. Then there's the response of the driver, said Osiki. Human reaction times can't be speeded up. At 180 miles per hour, a car is traveling 264 feet per second, almost the length of a football field and the time it takes you to snap your fingers twice. So we get a little glimpse into Osiki's thinking here. He needs a driver that has quick reaction time, someone that can be very lightning fast on their feet to react to whatever's happening, and that is a drag racer. That's someone who's driving by instinct and feel, which is why Malone became an attractive candidate. Continuing on, quote, We found Malone's reaction time was about three-fourths of a second, so we put flags at the start of the west and east turns 200 feet before the actual turns began. When he hit those flags, he turned the wheel. Add to this the fact that he's in the straightaways the car is traveling as high as 226 miles an hour. That's the high speed we timed on the 181.561 mile per hour record run, and that was with the throttle only half open. Now, of course, every hot rodder in the world says stuff like that. Well, there's still more in it. Going 226, we're only at half throttle. Continuing on with the story. At those speeds, the minute you take your foot off the accelerator, the rear end starts to break out. So in actuality, you take the car into the curves in one long skid. Listen to this. At the 200-foot marker, he takes his foot off the throttle altogether, momentarily, and at the same time, he turns the wheel. For five or seven seconds, as the car slides around the curve in a four-wheel drift, even with a negative airfoil, it looks like black shredded wheat sp spraying from the rear tires as the rubber peels off the casings. Then the driver must accelerate again as he is in the turn to gain absolute control in the southwest corner where the wind hits the track from the long stretch of flatland that forms the airfield next to the racetrack. In parentheses, 
Many stock car drivers report this wind is often severe enough at 120 to 150 mile an hour speeds to move a speeding car a full lane to the left. Continuing for Bob Osicki's words. At 181, the car would go into orbit without the stabilizing rudder and the negative airfoils. After the Osiki Dodge cracked the world's closed track record August 5th with the flashing 177.479 lap, transmission problems forced delay to run for the $10,000 until August. But on August 21st, Malone piloted the winged car for a 178.253 mile an hour lap, breaking his own record by almost eight-tenths of a mile an hour, but still short of 180. Two days later, the car was back out on the track, and again, observers say the 180-mile-an-hour mark almost certainly would have been broken, but fate brushed Malone almost too closely. Midway through the east turn, high on the steep banking, the car suddenly rocked, spun, and skidded sideways for 1,600 feet, blowing a tire. However, Malone skillfully brought the machine to a stop without injury to himself or damage to the car. Finally, on August 27th, the team and the car were back on the track, and the second on the second lap, a new record was set again at 178.571 miles an hour, up 0.22 miles an hour from the August 21st mark. But oil was spotted on the windshield, and the car was pulled from the track and completely checked that night. The next day came the 181.561 mile an hour run, and the runs were done. But there is more to come from Osiki. In December 1961, he had the car back in California for the engine to be installed out of a 62 Dodge. The efforts for top speed in the future consist of an attempt to crack 200 on a track and then to the Bonneville Salt Flats for some straightaway stuff. Osiki has his eye on 400 miles per hour. Well, a couple of things here. One, they break the record, 181 and a half. Art Malone is drifting this car, four-wheel drift, for seconds at a time through the corners at Daytona, like a boss, spins the car once, basically, and is able to break this record, go over the 181, get the world record, get the 10000 bucks, which is the equivalent to about $90,000 today. The car never got that 62 Dodge engine. The car never went to Bonneville. The car did, however, go on a promotional tour that made Bob Osicki a bunch of money, and he needed it. The 10000 bucks that he got from Bill France, arguably or assuredly, some of that went to Art Malone for his troubles and his risk, did not even begin to cover the supposed $35,000 that Osiki had spent on this adventure. Now, Osiki had the money to spend. He was not a, a broke guy. He was a very successful businessman in the high-performance world. But to think that he would spend $302,000 to chase $86,000 shows us that racer's mentality has not changed a bit in more than 50 years. Let's talk a little bit about Art Malone. And I did mention the fact that Malone was a childhood friend of Don Garlitz, that Malone is a guy who was a drag racer and solely a drag racer, which is kind of true at this point in history in 1961, except for a couple of small asterisks. Earlier in 1961, Art Malone drove a race car, not for Don Garlitz, but for the Petty family at Martinsville. Yes, he ran the 1961 Martinsville race, started 15th, and finished 8th in a NASCAR race, for the Petty family at Martinsville. Those who are familiar, Martinsville, the track they call the Paperclip, it is the shortest track on the NASCAR circuit. I do not believe that his experience at Martinsville gave him a lot of workable knowledge here in what he was trying to do on the first super speedway in the world. It did, however, 
has to be said that he did race something other than dragsters at this point in his life. Interestingly, in 1962, he would go on and race a car for Jack Smith at Daytona on the very racetrack that he ran 181 miles an hour at. He would start 13th and he would finish 10th. So not only is this guy a top fuel world record setter, he is now a two-time top 10 finisher in NASCAR competition. And because of this performance that he put on at Daytona with this vastly overpowered kind of brutal car, he was hired by Andy Granatelli in 1963 and 1964 to race in the Indy 500. He drove the Novi, the famed four-wheel drive supercharged V8 Novi, the most fearsome, some say, Indy car ever built, the handful that were created. And Malone drove it successfully. He was able to garner himself an 11th place finish in 1964, the highest finish ever recorded by a Novi at the Indy 500. It should also be noted that Art Malone won the Bakersfield March Meet in 1963, which was among the crown jewels of the entire sport of drag racing. So this is a guy, and he would go on for his whole life. He raced all different types of things, was tied in with Don Garlitz forever. 1984, he and Garlitz team up. They pull a car out of the museum. They win the U.S. Nationals together. Um, He is one of American motorsports' great unsung kind of maybe underappreciated guys no he didn't drive in a hundred nascar races no he didn't drive in a hundred indy 500s but he drove there and he drove on the level with professionals in professional equipment and he hung in with everything he ever sat in and this uh record that he set at daytona going 181 miles an hour kind of set the world on its ear so as we hear of his bravery and hear of his skill set what does it mean to set this record How strong was the record? How long did it last? Well, it lasted four years. And it would be reset again at Daytona. It would be reset again by a car with a Dodge motor in it. It would be reset again by a car with a supercharger on it. Except if you can imagine this. Instead of having this crazy winged old Indy car that has this blower motor hanging out of it, looks like a complete and utter freak show, has a driver behind the wheel that is highly inexperienced with what he's trying to pull off, doing something that is obscenely dangerous. In 1965, we're talking about Leroy Yarborough driving a supercharged stock body Dodge Coronet that the only alteration exterior-wise in this car was a lump in the hood so that the bug catcher and supercharger could pop through and get fresh air. And the awesome part about this is when Yarborough broke the record, he broke it by a couple tenths of a mile an hour. The record that Malone achieved was 181.561 miles an hour, and in this quite literally supercharged Hemi stock car, Leroy Yarborough went 181.818 miles an hour. And it would be all the way into the ensuing years, almost a decade later, where guys like Mark Donahue would be running just over 200 miles an hour. Donahue, famously in Talladega in 1975, drove a Porsche 917-30, his Can-Am car, to an average lap of almost 220 miles an hour. And the record went up and up from there. A.J. Foyt was obsessed with the speed record in a closed course for several years. He held it on and off over his time during the 1970s, and it was a great accomplishment for these two guys from the Southeast that no one had ever really heard of before, especially this young Art Malone character in the world of high-speed oval track racing. They launched themselves to prominence and to fame. We go back to Sports Illustrated 
the Sports Illustrated issue written on October 2nd, or I should say published on October 2nd, 1961. A quick blurb in the magazine, not a full feature, but it's worth the read. The monster is not, as it appears to be, a four-wheeled airplane gone wrong, but a winged automobile gone right. So right, in fact, that last summer the Mad Dog 4 set a new class closed course record of 181.561 miles an hour at the Speedway at Daytona Beach, Florida. Quote, the whole secret is in the wings, says Bob Osicki, the 40-year-old veteran of the racing business who worked and studied for years to perfect the monster. I knew 180 could be equaled or bettered on the Daytona track, but it was no easy task. Finally, I realized aerodynamic control was the correct answer. The control was achieved largely by mounting an airplane's wings upside down on the car. Thus, instead of taking off in the air, it dug its wheels firmly into the pavement to provide extra traction. When burly driver Art Malone piloted Mad Dog to its record after endless trial and error, builder Osiki, who looks like a wrestler, kissed him unashamedly. I knew we'd do it, he said, and he didn't even mind that the $10,000 prize he just won was $25,000 short of what it cost him. Sadly, Bob Osiki would live only three more years. He would die of a heart attack at 43 years old, leaving behind an incredible but largely forgotten legacy in the world of motorsports that includes being a foundational and charter member of NASCAR, being the owner and operator of a successful sanctioning body in drag racing known as the ITA, opening and operating the Chester Drag Strip, having a very successful string of car shows, owning and operating multiple car dealerships, running factory racing programs, and more. Bob Osicki's legacy may be somewhat lost to history, but it's not lost to us here at the Dorkomotive Podcast, and that's why you're going to be hearing more about Bob Osicki in upcoming episodes. And if you're wondering what happened to the Mad Dog 4, we'll go to Don Garlett's Museum of Drag Racing in Ocala, Florida to see the car one of his best friends drove to one of the most historic moments in American motorsports. How about that? Thanks for listening to this Dorkomotive short that went a little long about the unlikely duo that broke the world's closed course speed record and set the mark over 181 miles an hour for the first time in mechanical history. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more Dorkomotive soon. Stay tuned. We'd like to welcome Nitroactive.net as the presenting sponsor of this episode of the Dorkomotive podcast. Nitroactive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts, as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from Moon Eyes, Laidback, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. Go to Nitroactive.net for a huge selection of old school hot rod and drag stuff. Use the code DORK for a 10% discount. That's DORK to save 10% on your next order at Nitroactive.net.